So Merry Christmas, Eve. Eve. Uh, tonight you have come to a building with a group of people that we would call the church. And you may be wondering why the first song we start off starts talking about a guy named Santa. And then we do two more songs, have nothing to do with Jesus. And then we end up with the song called Frosty and build this crazy monstrosity on the stage. And your question is probably like, what is going on? You know, you, you and, and I have come, come to this place, and when, like, you know, we call ourselves the church, and we're wondering, you know, where is all of this about Jesus? I thought that was supposed to be about. But our society, if you haven't noticed, uses many images to reference Christmas. I am not talking just about the overtly Christian ones, like a manger, or wise men, though they were not even at the birth, or farm animals, or shepherds, or angels, or cookies, because those are Christian, by the way, crosses. And in some very bizarre cases, even a menorah, although that should make you kind of scratch your head a little bit. You know, you have also have eggnog and trees and candy canes and Santa Claus and sleighs and reindeer and hot chocolate and wreaths and bells and candles and Christmas cards and stockings and lights and gifts and holly icicles and fruitcake, mistletoe, poinsettias, tinsel, wassail, and yule logs. But it seems, next to Santa, because you can actually trace Santa back to something spiritual, the most bizarre symbol we have, today, of something about Christmas is is a man made of rolled balls of ice or snow or polyester that we call Frosty. Now, years ago, Steve Nelson and Jack Rawlings, they wrote a song called Frosty the Snowman, and at the time that they wrote it, they were only trying to capitalize on Gene Autry's runaway hit, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The snowman, up to that point, never even had a name, but yet today his popularity rivals Anybody's. Muhammad Ali, Brad Pitt, and Barack Obama have not combined, have not been on more magazine covers than a snowman, or on breakfast cereal commercials, for that matter, as well. I'll give you a, a few little bits of trivia. Uh, number of movies with snowman in the title, 22. Number of movies in which the snowman is the killer, 6. <laughs> number of Americans per 100 million with the surname Snowman, 130. Number of those who live in Alaska, zero. Number of those who live in Florida, 21. Average number of snowflakes it takes to make a snowman, 10 billion. Doesn't even come close to the debt, okay? That's all I'm saying. Uh, average number of calories burned in making said snowman, 238. Number of web searches a day for the word snowman, 1,400. And number of times the snowman in question is frosty, one in three. Now the modern snowman, he wears a hat and a stupid grin. But in Renaissance culture, a snowman would usually resemble someone. It was meant to convey a message. The modern snowman is just, a, like I said, a couple rolled balls of ice. And I think the modern making of snowman is woefully neglected, personally. Think about this. The snowman is portrayed as not ever being an atheist, but he is very non-denominational. A New Jersey Court of Appeals recently ruled that a plastic snowman counterbalanced the menorah, the manger, and Kwanzaa symbols in a city hall display. The court said if Frosty was absent, the entire display would have to be dismantled by federal law. As long as Frosty was there, Santa, menorah, a manger were not religious symbols, but secular holiday decorations. So apparently Frosty has got an awful lot of pull behind him. The snowman's only real enemy, we think, would just be the sun, but that's not actually true. The Association of Education Publishers put an across-the-board ban on the word snowman in its publications, and now you're only allowed to use the word snow person. The Taliban 
when they came to power in 1996, banned all snowman making as well. Now, we live in an age of expansion where everyone wants something bigger and better than their neighbor. This is translated into Christmas lights and decorations and snowmen. So snowman builders today, either they go for the world record in size or some rubbernecking freak of nature. The world's largest snowman is Angus, king of the mountain in Maine. They have even have crop circles now of snowmen. Now, Mark Twain once said, no one ever went broke underestimating the taste of the American public. So, Hollywood tries to bear this out. You have a couple live-action movies involving Frosty. In 1996, you have Jack Frost. He's the killer. Okay. The tagline of this is, he's chillin' and a killin'. They actually made a sequel, I have no idea why, called Jack Frost 2. The tagline, he's icin' and a slicin'. The story takes place in the town of Feliz Navidad. In 1981, Batman even has a villain named Klaus Christian, a.k.a. the Snowman. In 1998, there's another Jack Frost movie that involved Michael Keaton as a reincarnated snowman. Film critic Roger Ebert said, I hated, hated, hated this movie. Never have I disliked a movie character more. Nice. Before all the hoopla of the Frosty song, the Snowman was actually used to sell cigarettes, Colgate toothpaste, because your breath is fresh and cool. Dandruff shampoo, because the snowman rides alone. It's, I guess, bad ad copy, apparently. Uh, the snowman was great because you didn't have to pay him any royalties or actually pay him at all. He never mouthed off. He never had a run-in with the tabloids. He was actually also used at one point to sell pantyhose, which is really the only time you ever got to wear clothes at all. In 1934, right after Prohibition ended, most leading liquor companies used him in their ad campaigns. Miller Beer, Ballantine Ale, Schlitz Beer, Oratel's Lager, Sheba's Regal Scotch, Jack Daniels, and Four Roses Whiskey. Now, all that booze may have led to that cross-stitch poem found on a lot of pillows that says this, I made a snowman as perfect as can be. I thought I'd keep it as a friend and let it sleep with me. I made it some pajamas and a pillow for its head. Then last night he ran away, but first he wet the bed. Now, Christmas has come a very long way from the heavy-drinking, high-crime days when uh, Christmas caroling, including barging into strangers' homes and helping yourself. But the snowman has been there every step of the way. The American Revolution, the French and Indian War, the Civil War. There are stories of soldiers who would make snowmen, put their weapons in their hands, and then go inside and get warm, hoping that would scare off anybody who wanted to attack their town. But do you know where the very first instance and in reference to a snowman is? It's from a little book that in 1380, that's called the Book of Hours. Now, it would be hundreds of years till you see another reference to the snowman. And right next to this snowman in the Book of Hours in 1380 is a text that reads this, Lord, you gave up the ghost shortly after uttering the words, it is finished. It seems everything somehow comes back to Jesus. And even as much as we try to get Christmas away from Jesus, it still comes back to him because Christmas is all about Jesus. And I think the reason for that is hope, because hope is truly found in no one else. I believe that we are a people, everybody hopes. C.S. Lewis said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. I think that is why you can take a snowman and trace him all the way back to Jesus. Because we are all hopers. We are creatures who can't stop wishing. We try and find four-leaf clovers. We wish on an evening star. We tell stories about genies coming out of bottles and granting three wishes. After a turkey dinner, we grab a bone and snap it in half, and whoever gets the larger piece gets their wish. I don't know who thought that up, 
but it, it didn't do the turkey any good. And it lived inside of him. You know, we teach our children to make a wish before blowing out a candle. We have kids watch this thing called Pinocchio. There's a little cricket named Jiminy, and he sings the song, When You Wish Upon a... Exactly. Because we all hope. We're all people who hope. In the early 20th century, there's a hobo. His name was Cliff Edwards. He's barely staying alive, so he pins all of his hopes on his greatest gift, a voice that could slide up three octaves with beautiful, pure sound. So he started singing at a restaurant, and he billed himself as Ukulele Ike. He gets discovered and becomes one of the great vaudeville and Broadway stars of the 1920s. Now, he was as big as a person came, and he is credited in some circles actually with inventing scat singing. Now, Edwards got all that he kind of hoped for, but it wasn't what he needed. And he begins this long slide down into alcoholism and gambling and tax troubles and bankruptcy and drug addiction. And he dies forgotten, broken on welfare in 1971. He outlived Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and his own fame by many decades. And many people have a very soft spot for him because the last big movie role that he had before his final long descent was when he gave voice to a little cricket named Jiminy and he sang When You Wish Upon a Star. We are all people who hope, but hope comes in two flavors, hoping for something and hoping in someone. Now, when you're hoping for something, you know, we're hoping for a particular outcome. Oh, I hope I get that job. Oh, I hope I get that house. Oh, I hope I get that girl. Hope I get that girl and she gets that job and we get that house. But sometimes hoping can also break your heart. In the movie The Shawshank Redemption, there's two central characters played by Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. And they have this running argument about hope. And Morgan Freeman has learned how to manage a disappointment by giving up hope. And he says, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can break your heart. And one day, it is the truth that everything we hope for will eventually disappoint us. Every circumstance, every situation that we hope for is going to wear out, give out, fall apart, melt down, go away like a snowman on a hot day. And when that happens, the question then is about our deeper hope, our foundational hope, when all your other hopes have been disappointed. And that's why I believe God places within everybody this secret hope that many people won't even dare say out loud that when you have lost this something you were hoping for, and it may be a really, really big something, there is a someone you can put your hope in. And that is the hope of Christmas. The whole testimony of the scripture points to this man, points to God becoming coming in the flesh, not because he will be able to give us this thing or that thing we were hoping for, but because he is the one we can put our hope in. The Old Testament records many stories about believers and skeptics, and one story takes place early on in the history of Israel. After the Israelites have been wandering in the desert for 40 years, carrying this Ark of the Covenant with them, they get into their promised land, but they are struggling. They don't have a king. This is before the time of David and Solomon. And Israel is fighting again with the Philistines, and they are hoping for something. They are hoping for a victory. So they go into battle with the Philistines, and they lose. After they lose, they get back together and they start to debrief. And they ask, where was God? We were counting on him. Why did he give us what we were hoping for? Then somebody gets a bright idea. They say, let's go into battle with the Philistines again, but only this time we'll use our secret weapon. Then we'll bring out the Ark of the Covenant and take him into battle with us. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is this box that God himself designed, in which the Israelites kept some of the manna. This is the bread that God fed them while they wandered in the, in the wilderness, and the Ten Commandments. But it was not just a box. It actually represented the very presence of God. But many of the Israelites believed that God was actually then stuck in this box. And if they brought this box into battle, God wouldn't let the enemy capture the Ark of the Covenant. It would be like capturing God. God wouldn't let that happen. 
So they thought, now God has to give us what we're hoping for. Now, this is this is an odd type of theology behind this, that, that God is stuck in a box or a cage or he sits up on a mountain. You've got to go find where he's stuck. In an episode of The Simpsons, the deeply theological show that it is, uh, Homer Simpson, he's watching He's watching TV. None of his favorite programs are on because a telethon drive is on to make some money for some organization. And so he gets tired of it and realizes that if they had this much money, they would get off the air and I could watch my TV programs. So he calls in and pledges the amount they need to make it to where they're going so he can watch his TV programs again. The only problem is Homer Simpson doesn't have the money. So the people at the fun drive find out. They come and they actually force him to go serve with a group of missionaries on a tropical island. The people he is serving with, they build a new church. And Homer, he is not theologically astute at all, if you've ever seen the show, but he's proud of their accomplishment. And so he sums it up like this. He says, well, I don't know much about God, but we sure have built him a nice little cage. But the truth about God is you can't keep him in a cage. You can't keep him in a box. He can't be tamed. He cannot be domesticated. You can't force him to give you the thing you were hoping for. Yet this is what the Israelites and you and I try to do all the time. So they go into battle a second time, and it's a disaster. Their army is crushed. They lose seven times more soldiers in the second battle than they did in the first one. And worst of all, the Ark of the Covenant gets captured. To lose the Ark to them was to lose the presence of God. It's what they thought made them distinct as a people. The high priest's two kids are involved in this battle, and both the high priest's sons die in this battle. And a runner goes and tells the high priest, your sons are dead, and the ark has been taken. And when he hears the ark is taken, he falls over dead. The high priest's daughter-in-law, she is in labor, ready to give birth, and she gets this news. And so she gives birth to a son. She names him Ichabod, and then she herself dies. Now, the Ichabod, this word, it comes from this root of kavod, Kavad, this is a beautiful word to Israel. This word meant glory and weight, that God's glory has a weightiness to it. And she names her child Ichabod. By putting this I in front of it, it means a negative, like an atheist is the opposite of a theist. She wanted her son to know what she now perceived as truth, and don't look for any comfort in this delusion. There is no God, there is no meaning, there is no hope, there is no glory, Ichabod. And so she wanted to warn her son that wishing does not make something so. Hope misplaced in a box, in a snowman, in a thing, can break someone's heart. Now, many people today believe that we live in an Ichabod world, that faith is nothing more than wishful thinking, though I personally think they all hope they're wrong. Freud once said, the biggest illusion of wishful thinking that human beings ever dreamed up is God. He actually wrote a book about this called The Future of an Illusion. It is better, he said, to grow up without our wishful thinking, without this hope. But the problem is, in Freud's line of thought, is that this cuts both ways because someone may become a doubter out of wishful thinking as well. C.S. Lewis said that his greatest wish was that there not be a God that be left alone. He said uh, that speaking of man's search for God always sounded to him like the mouse's search for the cat. This is the point of Christmas, though. It's not that we are trying to find God. It's that God comes to find us because one day deliverance does come to this people of Israel and to all mankind. Hope did come in a way that nobody was expecting. God came to his people not in a box, but in a man, or more to a point, a baby. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this language is actually very evocative because the word for dwelt is literally the word for tabernacle. Tabernacle means tent. It is a place of dwelling. Literally, God came and tented. He made his home among us. 
Now for the Jews, the temple, the tabernacle was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, where the Israelites believed God was. The whole verse says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, his kavod, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, from that day on, the world has never been the same. The kingdom that we all secretly hope for is actually real. And you and I and men and women of all races are invited to live in the hope of this baby in a manger who grew into a man. This glory, this, this hope comes in a strange combination of humility, loneliness, and fearlessness. Nobody could tame Jesus. Nobody could place Jesus in a box, even though today men still try to hide him behind a snowman. Nobody, not the politicians, not the zealots, not the religious leaders, nobody could use him. Nobody could manipulate him to get what they wanted, and nobody could shut him up. So in the end, those who were in power decided to kill him, him because surely that would have to stop it. But the thing is, you just can't keep God in a tomb, in a box, in a cage. You just can't keep him down. The authorities didn't know it, but his death wasn't defeat for him. In Scripture, we are told that he died for our sins. What this means is that he died to do what you and I, with all of our little efforts, could never do. All of our tries at self-improvement and trying to do better and giving enough and going to church enough and doing enough nice things, we could never do this. He set himself everything right between God and us. He was dying the death that by all rights you and I deserve to die. He was born. He lived, he died, he rose to restore hope. And it all starts with Christmas. The kavod of God in the flesh of Christmas screams hope for all people. And is any lesser hope worth hoping for? Could any lesser hope be what Christmas is about? Tomorrow, still tomorrow, you guys will, will get up and you'll maybe unwrap presents, hang out with family. And I invite you to remember the glory of God. Jesus coming in the flesh as a baby. Maybe you are somebody in your life tomorrow, and maybe you're not looking forward to it because maybe you've lost hope. Maybe you had a personal relationship that just isn't what you thought it should be. Maybe you put your hope in a thing. Maybe you put your hope in a holiday called Christmas and not the Christ who is at the heart of Christmas. I invite you to place your hope in Jesus because he is the only one worth placing your hope in. I actually debated tonight if I was going to serve you guys communion or not. And then I kind of came down to, yeah, I'm going to. Communion, what we do at communion is we remember Christ, his death, and his resurrection. You come and you break the cracker and it reminds us of his body which was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice and it reminds us of his blood that was shed for us so you and I could be redeemed and live the life that God calls us to live. And it all starts at the hope of Christmas. And if tonight you are here with your family and you decide you want to take communion, I would invite you to take it with your family. Do it as a family. Because God calls us all to be a people together in fellowship as a family. And as families, I believe that we need to be those who show the world the hope of who Christ is. Because it's so much more than this crazy snowman we got on stage. His redemption and hope for all mankind. Why don't you pray with me? Father, tonight, we thank you for being a God who has come and spoken to us in so many ways. We thank you for your glory, the glory that sometimes we don't see or that we even try to hide ourselves. 
I ask that, that our lives begin to display that and see that glory more and more. That we would understand the hope. And this hope would also turn into belief. And we lay our lives at your son's feet. Your son who came as a baby and grew into a man, died and rose to redeem us all. How is remembered the hope of Christmas? Amen.